Shall we pray? Our Father, we ask as we open your word that you will bring the truth of your word deeper and more clear to our hearts and minds, and that you would increase our faith and our confidence in the scriptures and in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his strong name. Amen. You may be seated. Would you open God's word with me to Genesis chapter 3? This year, I thought it would be just a good study to have two sermons on two babies. A baby that opens the scriptures in Genesis 3, and a baby that's born closing the scriptures in Revelation 12, which we'll look at next week. There's a baby to be born, Genesis 3 announces, and this is the meaning of Christmas. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There was an article in the Star-Ledger called The Roots of Christmas, The Origins of Christmas. Where did it come from? The article told a lot of information, told how Rudolph was the invention of Montgomery Ward in 1939. It described the beginnings of the Yule log and that Christmas stockings were originally shoes, why we have evergreens, why we have ornaments, why we have the 12 days of Christmas, but there was no reference to the birth of Christ. Article didn't even mention his name. The closest reference to religion was, it said that an ordained minister, Reverend Clement Moore, wrote the poem about Santa the night before Christmas all through the house. It's pathetic. It's ironic describing the roots of Christmas without even mentioning the name of Christ. That's that's like trying to describe the origins of of America and only talking about a recipe for apple pie. The origins of the birth of Christ. That's what we're celebrating this time of year. What was the purpose of the birth of Christ? Where do we find the origins of of the announcement of the birth of Christ begins here in Genesis 3.15. His incarnation is to come as a victor, and on the cross he will crush the head of Satan and free us from Satan's kingdom. And so God promises the birth of the Messiah millennia before Luke 2, recorded here in Genesis 3.15. Known in church history, this verse was known in church history very early on, at least from Irenaeus, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, as the first gospel. John Calvin says somewhere that a preacher ought to be often in the third chapter of Genesis, the third chapter of John, and the third chapter of Romans. In the third chapter of John, we read about the new birth, which out, without which no one will see the kingdom of God. Third chapter of Romans, we read how to be saved and to be justified by faith alone, by grace alone. But in Genesis chapter 3, you find the reason for both. Genesis 3 is explaining why there must be the new birth of Genesis 3, of John 3, and why there must be salvation by faith alone in Romans chapter 3. 
Genesis 3 is now the account of Adam and Eve who have sinned and God in his judgment has come to place them under judgment and the curse, explaining why this world is broken, why we need a savior. Genesis 3.15 is telling us what Christmas is all about. Adam and Eve have sinned. Sin and the curse and death have entered the human race and God is coming now and in our text, Genesis 3.15, God is addressing Satan. It's one of the most important verses in the Old Testament. It's the first prophecy of Christ and his work. There's two beginnings here. Genesis 3.15 is announcing the beginning of the gospel of grace and it's announcing the beginning of God's holy war. Genesis 3.15 is announcing the beginning of the gospel of grace. From this point on in human history, the only way you're going to have a relationship with God is by grace, by his undeserved favor. Because mankind has now sinned. They've aligned with Satan and rebelled against God. And so the natural man is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God. Neither can he be, Romans 8, 7. The natural man now in our blindness is not allowed to, not wants to, not is able to come to God. In our natural, natural state, we're dead in sin, Ephesians 2, 1. And unless God gives the new birth, we are as the Gentiles who live in the futility of their thinking, darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them. We are alienated and enemies in our mind against God, Colossians 1.21. So from this point on, in all of history, the only way to have a relationship with God is by grace. And God comes and addresses them. If you're going to have a relationship with me, It's only because I am initiating, I am showing undeserved favor and grace. And so the rest of scripture, all of the covenants that are made, covenants with Noah, covenant with Abraham, the new covenant, they're all subsets of this, from this point on. Everything is under this all-inclusive one covenant of grace established here in Genesis 3.15. It's a real serious error to suppose that people in the Old Testament, like Moses or David, could somehow be saved by their own good works, as if they could obey the law and be saved. Paul's strong argument in Romans 4 is, no, that's never been the way. Abraham and David understood this. David says the same thing, Romans 4.6, when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. You're not saved by works in the Old Testament. You're saved by grace in faith that God will provide a substitute redeemer and God will give a righteousness that he needs to stand before him. It's a very serious error to suppose that anyone in history is saved by their works. It's a very serious error to suppose that you will be saved by your works. No one can be saved by their works. Why should God let you into heaven? The answer is never because of my works and my obedience. The only answer is because Christ died in my place and I have received and trusted in him for the forgiveness of sins. So Genesis 3.15 from this point on is the beginning of the gospel of grace. But our focus is more today as Genesis 3.15 is the beginning of God's holy war. The key word in this verse is in verse 15 is the word you see it enmity. What is that? It's ill will. You hear it also in enemy. God is announcing in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to war against Satan. Adam and Eve have now aligned themselves with Satan as their leader, as their father, and God is coming and declaring war. I'm going to send my victor 
and he's going to crush Satan, and he's, I am going to deliver myself a people from Satan. I'm going to war, God is declaring. I'm establishing the enmity. And so Genesis 3 is recording here this war with three conflicts, and you'll see them, we'll take them each phrase. There's the conflict, first of all, in verse 15a, the, en- the enmity between Satan and the woman. Secondly, there's the enmity between Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And third, there's the enmity between two individuals. And who are they and what is the consequence of this? We're all in this verse. This affects all of humanity and all of human history. The first conflict that God establishes in verse 15, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, woman as she represents all believers. You notice this is not a command for us to do something. It's not a command for us to hate Satan as if we could do it on our own, Adam and Eve. And now the human race are under darkness rather than light. They can't come to the light on their own. They're hiding from God, lest their sin be exposed. No one seeks God now, Romans 3.11. But God says, I will place this enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, as she represents all believers. God is not saying that we have to stir up within us a natural hatred for sin because there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3.10. What's it saying? God is saying, I'm going to place within the heart of my people something that is not natural to them. They have aligned themselves now with Satan. But I'm going to give them a hatred for Satan. I'm going to give them the desire to repent. I'm going to give them the desire to be in conflict with Satan and turn from him and turn from their sins. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do something that they cannot do themselves. It's all by grace. God's first step to bring his people back to himself. Even though Adam and Eve have made themselves the friends of Satan, the enemies of God, God is going to reverse this. In the woman and in her descendants and God's elect people as a group, God's going to give them a hatred for Satan and a repentance for sin. What a comfort this is. If you know your own heart and you know the power of the world, if it were up to us. But God is going to make sure that his people have been given a repentance and a hatred for sin and will turn and flee from Satan. That's the first conflict that God will establish. The second conflict that God is going to establish in the second part of the verse, there's going to be enmity between God's people and Satan's people. I will put enmity between your offspring, Satan's, and her offsprings, Eve's. Who are these two groups? And what's the enmity? The word that's translated seed here or offspring can be plural or singular, like descendant, descendants. It's looking at two groups of people represented by Satan as their father and the line that comes of believers from Eve. 
who are Satan's offspring, who are Satan's seed. It's all who are unbelievers. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are of your father, the devil. John 8, those who oppose Jesus Christ are the tares that are mixed among the wheat, and they are the children of the evil one, Luke 3, 7. John makes this clear, 1 John 3, 8, he who does what is evil is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Don't be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one. Referring to Satan from the beginning. All those who live in sin, all those who are unbelievers like Cain, have Satan as their father in contrast to those who've been born again and have come to Christ and are resting in him. Children of God, children of the devil, the two lines of human history, the two great families. And that's the line from Eve. It's the line of the believers. Her seed, it should not be capitalized here as the as the New King James does. It's not talking about the one seed, which is next. It's talking about seed as the whole collective, all the people of God, all the believers, Old Testament and New Testament, who are of the line of Eve, born of God. 41 times, just in the book of Genesis, you have the word seed or offspring. It's a major theme in Genesis. And God is promising grace to that line I will be the God to you and your descendants. Noah and his seed. Abraham and his seed. From Genesis 3.15 on, there's two families. There's two kingdoms. There's two seeds. There's two groups. The whole human race is divided into these two groups of people. These two groups, as Augustine referred to them, as the city of God and the city of man. Revelation 18 referred to these two groups as Babylon and Jerusalem. Francis Schaeffer referred to these as the two humanities. God is not the father of all people. If you've only had a physical birth and not a spiritual new birth, then you're still in Satan's kingdom, and Satan is your father. You need to be born again. Jesus said, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, John 3, 3. May God give you today a new heart to repent of your sins and to come into the kingdom of Christ. Those are the two groups, believers and unbelievers. So what's the enmity between them? God is going to establish an enmity between these two groups. And why? There must be and there always will be an antithesis, a contrast between these two groups. There must be a constant contrast, antithesis, conflict between darkness and light. Shows even in the first generation, doesn't it? Cain was of the family of Satan. Abel, the line of Eve, God's family. Cain hated Abel. And murdered him. Just a few chapters. Genesis 6. 
the whole world has gone violent and evil and God is bringing judgment upon the world. Why? Because the scriptures tell us that godly line from Seth is losing their identity. They're intermarrying. Believers are intermarrying with unbelievers and they're losing their identity. They're losing the purity of God's covenant people. It's a very serious sin for a believer to marry an unbeliever. The flood came for that reason, to purify again the line of Eve. This is Satan's war through history as he must have God's people lose that antithesis. He must have God's people become more and more like the world and get consumed by the world and lose the distinction between light and darkness. Satan is driving that. That's why the world hates Christ and hates the church. And that's why the Christian cannot lose this antithesis. It's why that we're told so often, you cannot love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And James is even more emphatic. James 4, for you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Today, you're either in Christ's kingdom or Satan's kingdom, and those kingdoms cannot mix. One is the kingdom of darkness. One is the kingdom of light. There's no neutrality. And believers, we are told again and again, you've got to remain distinct and separate from the world. Don't let the world consume you. This explains why we're not to be surprised that the world always feels disgust or shame or persecution toward the church or that attraction that the world wants to suck the believer in and so they lose their identity. It's all forms of persecution from Eritrea putting believers in shipping crates in the middle of the desert because they profess faith in Christ. Academia, the university professor mocking Christians with a worldview. The chaplains in the United States forces being told they can't speak of the gospel. Your unsafe family who mock you around the Christmas table. Don't be surprised. God established that conflict at the very beginning. And God says, you must keep that distinction. So as we go through history and the generations after generations go by, when it seems like the church is going to get swallowed up in the world, have hope. God has promised. He's going to preserve the line of Eve. He's going to preserve the true church of Jesus Christ. It will not be extinguished. Here's the beginning of God's holy war, and this war has three conflicts. It's the enmity, first of all, between Satan and the woman and all she represents. God's going to grant his people repentance and hatred for Satan. Conflict number two is all the people in both kingdoms. There has to be an antithesis between light and darkness. The third conflict that God is establishing here is between two individuals. Look at the third phrase in verse 15. He, we're back to singular, he shall bruise your head, and you, singular, shall bruise his heel. So we've been looking at seed, descendants, plural. 
Now we're looking at seed singular. You, Satan. In contrast to he, Christ. He is a better translation than the King James it. It's talking about a a person to be born from the line of Eve. Messiah is to be born. This is going to be the center of human history. When God is going to turn the tide of his war. And so this theme is just repeated throughout all of Old Testament scriptures. Anytime you see a warrior representing God's people, David standing against Goliath. It's a hint. It's the music is warming up. God's warrior, victor, is coming. And he's going to win the war. Some have suggested, is there even a hint here, even, of the virgin birth? Because seed of the woman is a very unusual expression. Seed is the the line of the man. But here is the Messiah's to be born of the woman. Two individuals, Satan and he, Christ. What's their battle? Here, the beginning of human history. God is announcing the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the cross, Satan thinks that he wins the victory. He has every intent to bruise. The word means to crush. It's a decisive victory. You notice it's, both of them are mentioning as bruising the other. So both think that they're in a decisive battle. The contrast is not in the verb bruise. The contrast is between foot and head. They both intend to destroy the other. But Satan is only going to cause a painful injury to the foot. The other one, Christ, is going to have a decisive victory. And he will crush Satan's head. Satan's only going to crush the heel of this woman's descendant. It's going to be a bite on the heel. He thinks his act is deadly. He supposes that he's going to destroy Eve's descendant. He, destroy, he assumes that he's going to annihilate the people of God. And again, that theme all, all the way through Scripture, even coming down to one individual, think of Haman, about to annihilate the Jewish people, and only one Esther stands forward. God redeems his people. How often that theme is there, because it's getting darker and darker and darker than the as little sprout springs from the root of Jesse. At the birth of Christ, Herod comes in his vengeance. The wise men didn't return, and he comes to slaughter all the baby boys in Bethlehem, thinking that here's Satan thinking, I will kill the, the baby when he's born. And how often through the earthly ministry of Christ, Satan comes from his temptation to disqualify Christ as Messiah, to stirring up the people of Nazareth to throw him over the cliff, to even, at the end, to enter into Judas. Satan believes that on the cross, finally, I have the Savior where I want him, and I will put him to death, and I will crush him. I will bruise him. 
And there's the supreme irony of human history. He, he really thought he was the winner. And it appears that Christ is helpless. He's the victim that's gone to a death on a cross that he did not deserve. But it turns out to only be a wound on the heel because he rises on the third day in victory. Jonathan Edwards called Satan, quote, the greatest blockhead the world has ever known. He had been one of the most intelligent beings ever created. And yet in all his intelligence, he foolishly thought that he could triumph over the all-wise God. Satan thinks that he's going to win the victory. But on the cross, Christ wins the victory and crushes the head of Satan. Luke 3 gives us the genealogy of Christ. You read it carefully. The genealogy of Jesus Christ is introduced as the son of Seth, the son of Adam, son of God. Why? Because here's the child from Eve. Here's the one that was promised of the line of Eve, the line of Seth. Here's the one to come to save a people. God will not allow humanity to perish, even though we have deserved his wrath He's chosen in grace to save us from our sins and deliver us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. And so Christ, as he goes to the cross, he knows what's happening. He knows what's about to happen. John 12, 31, now is the time for the judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now's the moment of victory. On his cross and his death, his resurrection, rising from the dead in triumph, his ascension into glory. Colossians 2.15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Hebrews 2.14, Christ too shared in our humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John 3.8, he appeared to destroy the works of the devil, to crush his head, if you want to use the language of Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is telling us, despite humanity falling into sin and rebellion and going over to Satan, God is coming in grace and saying he's going to war and he's going to deliver himself a people. Redeemer's going to come from the line of Eve, and this Redeemer will atone for all the sins of his people and triumph over the evil one. In spite of Adam and Eve choosing sin, God so loved us that sin and Satan will not have the last word. The Messiah, the seed of the woman, will destroy the deceiver, be victor, and lead his people into the new heaven and the new earth. John Gerstner writes, Satan was majestically triumphant in this battle. He had nailed Jesus to the cross, the prime object of all of his striving through all of the ages was achieved, but he failed. For the prophecy which had said that he would bruise the seed of the woman had also said 
that his head would be crushed by Christ's heel. And thus, while Satan was celebrating his triumph in battle over the Son of God, the full weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil had effected, came down on him, and he realized that all this time, so far from his successfully battling against the Almighty, he had actually been carrying out the purposes of the all-wise God. Genesis 3.15 is the first Christmas card. The first birth announcement of Jesus Christ. It's the beginning of God's gospel of grace. It's the beginning of God's holy war, which will be accomplished on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You notice how even the world unbelievers celebrate Christmas? And they'll sing Christmas carols about a sweet, sentimental baby being born? Well, that's sort of innocuous and beautiful and peaceful. But it's not the whole story. Because this baby that is born is actually a warrior to conquer all of his and our enemies. He's come to put an end to Satan and to sin and to death and his hell and to rescue his people from the kingdom of darkness. As we sing in the Christmas carol, the Savior born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. You ever think about those words? Christ has come as a victor. If you're under the hearing of the word today and not in Christ's kingdom, you still have Satan as your father, but why? Come to Christ today. It'd be my joy to show you more of the gospel. Put your trust in Christ. And believer, keep perspective. What is Christianity all about? What is Christmas all about? And your answer, if you say that Christianity is about the new birth and each person personally putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins, I would say yes, comma. And yes, it's a truth that the Holy Spirit indwells each believer and by the privileges of adoption, has all of the promises of God. Yes, Christianity by faith in Christ is very personal and it's for the individual. Yes, comma. But there's so much more. Christianity is not primarily subjective. Christianity, as Michael Horton put it, the the reason that Christ came was to defeat The devil. And the rest of the Bible is supplemental around this central conflict. From Genesis 3.15, Christ is the meaning of history. From Genesis 3.15, Christ is the message of scripture. The Bible and the history and life is not primarily about you. It's not primarily that you have a happy and fulfilled life as a Christian. That's true. But the primary message of the gospel is about Christ. Christianity is not primarily a system of ethics. It's not primarily a subjective experience. It's the historical account of the birth and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has happened. He has crushed Satan's head. He has won the victory. 
And he is ruling all things. And that day when the last elect person is brought into his kingdom, he's going to return in glory and he will cast Satan forever into hell. That's the message of Christianity. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. That's the center of history. Keep that center. And if this is true, that Christ has fulfilled the central promise of Scripture to defeat the evil one, then he's also fulfilling all of the promises. For all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the the precious good news of the gospel and the forgiveness of each person's sin and the joy of being reconciled to God as our Father. We don't minimize any of those joys or finding a life of fulfillment and promise and peace in the work of the Holy Spirit. But, oh, our Father, we need to be reminded of the bigger picture. And there's more going on than just our subjective relationship with you. It's the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're celebrating. Lift up our hearts from any discouragement of this broken world. Lift up our hearts from any fear or anxiety of the attacks of the evil one. And let us find great joy in the promises of Scripture and now in the sacrament where Christ has declared he's coming again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.